for bringing us this morning to worship. We have been uh, talking about leading God-directed life for the last few weeks. And as we have been talking about it, we have in the last four or five weeks been specifically talking about that God-directed life as it is reflected in the stories in the book of Daniel. We've not been taking this book as it is often taken just as a, a, a prophetic book where we go through and we read all the prophetic messages and we talk about those and we put the two thumbs up and we say, yay God, look at those prophetic messages. Instead, we've been looking at this book more about the human interaction that here's a man named Daniel who is walking through a very difficult life and staying very close to God in the process. And as an example of what it means to live a God-directed life. And so I want to open the, new, the, the next page, this next sort of uh, scenario in the life of Daniel. I want you to hear first a prophecy made by Isaiah 200 years ago, if we were Daniel at his time, 200 years before the moment that Daniel lives in, the prophet Isaiah makes this statement, makes this prophecy. It's in Isaiah chapter 45. It actually begins in, in chapter 44. But it is primarily in, verse, in chapter 45. Ending of 44, verse 28 says, Speaking of God, Who says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have hailed to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break the pieces of the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches and secret places that you may know. That I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. That's the prophecy that sets us up today. So ultimately, what we should be peering into these pages to find is a picture that tells us something about the character of God. A picture that tells us something that lets us know that the Lord is our God and he, as he was the God of Israel. He speaks to Cyrus and calls him by name 200 years before he enters the city of Babylon. And I don't know if you're familiar with how he enters the city of Babylon, but he enters enters through the two-leafed gates that the Babylonians didn't lock because they didn't think anybody could get to them. These were the double gates that were over the river. And the Babylonians would leave them open at times because they were blocked by the river. Nobody's getting in through the river. Cyrus diverts the water. The previous passage talks about him drying up the rivers before Cyrus. He diverts the water out into a lake in the middle of the desert and he goes through an open gate without firing a shot, so to speak. He takes the city of Babylon, kills that night, as we read last week, the one who is acting king in Babylon, Belshazzar, who's throwing a big party in the midst of the party where he's drinking from the goblets that are there from the temple of Israel. Daniel comes in and reads to him the writing on the wall. You remember the story? That's the close of the Babylonian era. It's been 67 years since Daniel arrived in Babylon. And as this story opens, Daniel is an older gentleman. He's probably 80, 85 years old, somewhere in there. And he is now being tasked with this this transition team from the Babylonian government into the the Persian government. And so we're going to pick this story up as we go along. But understand the background of this story that children know all over the world who don't even know the Bible. All over the world, you ask people what they know about the Bible, they'll start telling you, I've heard of this story and I've heard of that story. And one of the stories that people will tell who don't know anything else about the Bible is this one. I've heard this story about a guy named Daniel who was trapped in the lion's den. Some king threw him in, lions didn't bite him, it was awesome. And they'll kind of give you that, yeah, I heard that story. There's, the, there's a couple that people know, the flood, the exodus, the, the, the creation, Daniel and the lion's den. Sometimes the, the Hebrews in the fiery furnace, some of those stories are the ones people know. Jesus walking on the water. They'll pick up a few things like that because those stories are told over and over again. Why? 
because they are the highlight reel of the highlight reel. You know what I mean? Greg, Greg, uh, Pastor Webster and I used to talk about NFL films a lot. Greg Webster is addicted to NFL films. If you want to send Greg a Christmas present next year, buy him an NFL film, send it to him. If he, does, if he has it already, he'll trade it in on another one. Guaranteed. He took his old videotapes of NFL films and turned them into, into DVDs so he could play them presently on his DVD player. When you start talking about the autumn rain is, a, is, well, all you have to do is say the autumn rain is, and he knows what that is, as all Raider fans do. And Greg's not even a Raider fan. But understand that NFL Films is showing you in, in, a, in a few minutes a whole season. They're giving you highlights of an entire season. The NFL just ended. The NFL Films for this year will be coming out shortly. And it will be a highlight reel of, of the best plays of the whole year in about 30 minutes. An hour if it's a long one. Understand that the Bible is a highlight reel of a couple thousand years. And so when you pick up this story, Daniel and the lion's den, it's such a powerful story, such a, such a meaningful moment, such a moment when God stepped in that people can relate to, that it's held out as the highlight reel at the top of the highlight reel. So it would be as if we took all of those, those highlights from NFL films for the last 50 years and you pulled out just the best plays of the last 50 years and you showed those. So when you get to stories like the crossing of the Red Sea, you notice that the crossing of the Jordan doesn't get the same pub as the, as the, the crossing of the Red Sea? It's just as impressive to me. God holds back the water of a river so his people can pass through. It's in the same book. But yet the Red Sea gets all the publication. The Red Sea gets all the press. Where's the poor Jordan River left by itself? Nobody been paying any attention to it. But there are highlights of the highlights. This one is one of those. Noah and the flood. The crossing of the Red Sea. Daniel in the lion's den. Jesus walking on the water. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Yeah, I don't know how that one gets in there, except some songs have been written by it. But those are the bits and pieces that people know about. Today, we're taking a stop at one of those highlight of highlights. One of those moments when God steps in. Today, I want to call this the faith of and in Daniel. And I'll talk about the faith in Daniel here in a couple of minutes. But I want you to remind you that we're at the middle of one of those, that chiastic structure. I'm sorry for using, uh, using theological terms and things, but it's good to understand. There's a, a, a pyramid sort of built in this section of the, of the Bible. Daniel chapter 2 relates to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 3 relates here to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel 4 and 5 are at the top of the pyramid. And the top, the very pinnacle of that pyramid is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar about God. Here in chapter, th- chapter 6, we're relating to chapter, chapter 3. Remember the story of chapter 3? The three Hebrews who are thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and this is their comment to the king. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. And you remember what the next thing they say is? And even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your, to your, your uh, idol, king. Sorry. We like it all, king, but we're not doing it. Sorry. We're going to remain faithful even if he doesn't rescue us. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad, throws him in the fiery furnace. They come out unscathed. They don't even smell like smoke, according to Scripture. Pretty cool. I want to remind you of where Daniel is. What's happened to him? We were, we've gone through this a couple of times. Daniel, at, at a, as a teenager, was forced to go through the siege of Jerusalem. His city was sieged. That means an army came, gathered around his city. There's no food or water allowed into the city. You just sit there in the city hoping the food lasts long, long enough for you to survive or that the army gets distracted and has to go away. And he suffers through the siege of Jerusalem, through his capture, the, being captured by the Babylonians, being chosen for exile. You realize not everybody was chosen. Not everybody got to be, got to play on this, uh, this kickball team. Daniel got chosen for this team that nobody wanted to be on. He got chosen and hauled off for exile. Number four, he marched 800 to 1,000 miles on his way to Babylon. As a captive, he was taken to Babylon. 800 to 1,000 miles. Number five, he was made a eunuch. You don't volunteer for this normally. He was made a eunuch at a time 
oh, I don't even want to think about how the, there's no anesthesia. There's not, it just, he just got to be made one. Number six, he faces the confrontation right when he first arrives about food. Will he eat the delicacies of the king's table or will he not? He chooses not to and faces that with the king. Number seven, he has death threats in chapter two over the king's dream. Remember the king has a dream. He gathers all the people together, the astrologers, etc., etc., etc. The list that they always go through and they don't have a thing to say, say to him. They, he says, all right, we're killing them all. Remember what he says he's going to do? We're going to chop you into pieces and turn your houses into ash heap. It seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's go-to space. You know, when he's angry, that's what he says. He and his wife are having a fight. I'm going to chop you into pieces and turn your house into ash heap. And he goes, she says, it's your house too. There's always that comeback, right? Death threats faced with the, king, with the king's dream. And now he's 67 years in Babylon. 67 years from the time he first arrived to where we are now. Babylon as an empire is collapsed. He is facing this change of empires. Remember that Pharaoh who knew not Joseph that was way back during the Exodus or during Israel's time in Egypt? Now we've got a new king, a new leader, a new boss is in town. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Cyrus and Darius are here. And Daniel is faced with this transition late in his life, 67 years into his life, 67 years into his, his service in Babylon. He's facing the end of this thing. And now, the fall of Babylon has happened. Cyrus has become the king of his new empire. How is Daniel going to deal with it? You know what I like about this chapter? We get to see somebody who finishes well. You know what I mean? We get to see the faithfulness of a lifetime. Now, we've, we've covered Daniel's entire lifespan in just a few chapters. And the book's not over. We're going to get some, some other pieces from Daniel, which we'll introduce next week. But understand that what we're looking at here in this picture, in these eight, nine points, is a life lived faithfully in a very, very difficult time. Most of us have never faced anything like Daniel faced. A few of us have faced a couple of these things. I don't think anybody in this room can say they were in a city that was under siege. He was. Most of us have never been on a thousand-mile march. In fact, I bet none of us have been on a thousand-mile march. Yet here is this guy facing all of those problems who stays faithful to God. So faithful, in fact, that this becomes the testimony about him. That he is absolutely and continuously faithful to God in the face of all of that. Having faith in the faithful. I want you to recognize as we go through this book how many people have faith in Daniel. So just kind of start making a mental list. Who has faith in this faithful man? How many people are having believe in him one way or the other? They have faith in this man's faithfulness. Is it easier to have faith in somebody who's normally faithful? Absolutely. If you know, if somebody, we'll start with the easy ones. You know, if you call your, da, your dog, he's going to show up, right? Most all dogs are faithful. Most, there are a few snooty dogs. Most dogs are faithful. You know if you call your cat, they're not coming, right? It's a rare cat who comes when you call them by name until you shake the food bucket, right? You grab the food thing and you start rattling it. The cats come out of the woodwork. Cats you didn't know you had come out. Your dog is faithful. Your cat is a cat. Cat people in the front here. It is easier to have faith in the faithful. Nobody calls their cat. I don't know people who get up and go, Okay, Sam, come. Because Sam doesn't come. People, kitty, 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 kitty. We should just record that because then you can just play it and not wear yourself out. Get the food thing, rattle it, the cat comes. It is easy to have faith in those who are normally faithful. That's where we find Daniel. He has lived a life of faithfulness. People trust him. People have faith in him. It is easy to have faith in those who are faithful. At this time of transition, is about 539 B.C. So Daniel was captured in 605. Now we're at 539 B.C. 
And we open the chapter with verses 1 and 2. It pleases Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Just leaders. Think of sort of local politicians. Okay? To be over the whole kingdom, over these three governors of whom Daniel was one. So you have 120 satraps, three governors. Daniel's one of those three. Now let me, te- let me stop you for a second. Um, again, historical context. They have just taken over the entire Fertile Crescent. So they came from Persia, Iran. Okay? The head of their normal government is in southwestern Iran. Down along one of the rivers down in the southwestern corner of Iran. Now they have swept across the entire region all the way to Egypt. So think of this big arc that goes from Iran all the way to Egypt. There's the, the Saudi Arabian desert out in the middle. They don't know there's oil there yet, so nobody cares. Okay? Nobody cares what's out there. They leave that alone. The Arabs can live out there as long as they want because it's a dry nothingness. They take a few things that are along the trade routes. They take a city called Tamaya, which is along a 2,000-year-old well. There's been a well there for 2,000 years. It's along the trade routes. They take control of a few of those things. But in general, they leave the desert alone. They take all of the fertile land. They start pushing up. The Persians start pushing up into the Euro Plains. They are on the European steppe fighting battles. Cyrus, in fact, dies in a battle on the European steppes fighting against those who will come into, come into Europe later, those barbarian tribes who live on the European steppes who come in and become the, the Germans and the French and a bunch of the other, others of us from there who thought we were different. Those Caucasus, those Caucasians that come in from there, those people are being fought by Cyrus to spread his empire toward the north. He goes all the way to Bulgaria with his, with his empire in the west. It's a huge empire. They can't just sit back there in Iran and call out to the people who are out there on the various places out on the edges and say, hey, take care of this for me, will you? They have to have structures and levels of government. The Persians go about building roads so that they can move quickly back and forth around the empire. They go about setting up organizational structures like this. This is not new to Persia. This is common when the Persians take over an area. It's also common for them to use... Do I feel like I'm rushing? Breathe. I'm rushing because Peter told me I couldn't go 30 minutes today. <clears throat> I probably can't. Understand that they, they are setting up structures of government and it is common for them to use local government to develop their own leadership. So they would pull in people from the local government and do just this. So these 120 guys are not foreigners. These 120 guys are locals. They're from the Babylonian region. So think uh, Tigris down to Kuwait. Okay? Tigris and Euphrates run together and they go down to Kuwait at the bottom. Okay? Think of that region. This is probably what these guys are overseeing. North of that is Assyrian and Medo-Persian area, probably being run by those guys. So think from Babylon south, that's what these guys are overseeing. Daniel's one of the top three chosen in this rank. Now... Why? Well, the night that the king, Cyrus, comes into the uh, city of Babylon, a guy has just told Belshazzar he's toast. And in fact, when Cyrus arrives in the room where most of these people who end up being satraps are gathered for a giant party, Written on the wall, by a hand disconnected from an arm, the finger of God has written, many, many tekel you farsen. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided among the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus comes in, somebody says, hey, you just missed all the fun. God wrote on the wall over there. What do you mean? Where'd that come from? That, you, well, really, it was not there 20 minutes ago. It's there now. And it, so, so you were coming, and there it is. How do you know that? Well, we talked to this guy. His name is Daniel. Bring him in. Imagine the story. Can you imagine what happened that day? He walks in, takes care of, dispatches Belshazzar. They say, what's on the wall? They tell him what the story is. And they tell the story of that Daniel. And Daniel starts to talk to Cyrus. And Cyrus says to Darius, who he leaves in charge, hey, keep track of this guy. The story is then told about Daniel and his dream, the king's dream, the experience he's had over the last 67 years as a leader in Babylon. And so the people, having heard of the story, 
start turning their hearts toward the person who follows this God who's been telling the story. And then I think to cap it all off, they read what we read earlier. To cap it all off, I think they break out the scroll of Isaiah and they basically say, we've been waiting for you. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd? He shall perform all of my pleasure. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open the gates and cut the bronze gates. I think they read to him the story from Isaiah. They tell him the stories of Daniel. And what can they do except put these guys top the list? And start wondering about a God who knew they were coming 200 years ago. Now, can I stop you for a sec? I I told you this once before. I'll come back to it again next week. These are the anchors for your faith in Scripture. People are shooting at Scripture all the time. They're, They're tearing at it. They're pulling away at it, saying, you can't trust that, you can't trust that, you can't trust that. Break out this picture from Isaiah and say, okay, explain to me how Isaiah knew who Cyrus was 200 years before he showed up on the scene. Probably 150 years before the guy was born, God names him. Explain to me how that happened. Without, of course, trying to explain a way that it didn't actually happen. See, the anchors of faith in Scripture are so much built in these prophetic moments. Don't let them go by without a sense of awe. I mean, I think Cyrus was blown away by this. I don't think Cyrus could ever change. I don't think Cyrus could ever stop realizing that this was true. It's it's like I shared with you before. If If you lived in a black room your entire life, my daughter shared this with me one day. If you lived in a black room your entire life and you didn't know there was such a thing as light and then somebody opens a window one day and you see the light and they quickly close it up and seal it out and all you have is blackness left, you can never forget that there is in fact light. Cyrus may be a Zoroastrian. He may worship other gods. He may think of all these other gods as legit, but he and Darius and Belshazzar and Nabonidus and Nebuchadnezzar all know something that is true. They know that the God that Daniel serves is the living God. And it changes them. It impacts them. It changes the way they, they approach the people of this God. Verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the other governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. He's a different sort of a guy. He's got a different sort of a spirit. I would say the Holy Spirit was in him. He was being led by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on Daniel, and that Holy Spirit made him different. It made a difference in the way he did his life. It made a difference in the way he worked for the king. King gave thought of settling him over all the whole realm. So he, he gave thought of putting Daniel in as prime minister. He's, they, they've taken 120 guys and they put him out there. They put three guys over those 120. And then he's looking across these three and saying, that guy is better than all the other three. Let's make him the boss of the bosses. Let's make him the prime minister. He will make him second only to me. And what happens to him? Well, we'll see. Chapter 4, verse 4. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. So what happens when Daniel gets raised up in the eyes of the king? Jealousy happens. What happens when the guy sitting in the cubicle next to you gets the job that you wanted? You congratulate him and you have no jealousy and you go, wow, that's awesome for you. So glad this is you going up there and being my boss. Hot diggity. Right? When the gal who's been working next to you for the last 15 years, who you trained into her job, gets the raise and gets to be the manager, then what do you do? You say, wow, we throw a party. Now, very often jealousy creeps in, doesn't it? Because we start seeing all the reasons why we should be the ones getting raised up, whether or not there's an excellent spirit in us, right? And we start seeing all the reasons why maybe it should be us that gets exalted here. Why aren't we being exalted? Come on. I've been here as long as he has. 
I'm Jewish just like he is. You realize these guys very much among this group is probably a bunch of Jewish leaders still. We know that because when we start looking at the rest of the story, Ezra and Nehemiah, you start finding out there are Jewish leaders in the, in the leadership in Cyrus's house, in Artaxerxes' house. There are Jewish people in leadership among these people. So probably among this group are some other Jewish, Jewish leaders. So they begin to look for a reason to catch Daniel in something concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Wow. Man, don't you wish that was always there as a note on the bottom of your, of your annual review? Wow, this, you know, dear, dear boss, X. I just want to say as a, as a note, we've covered the categories, um, exceeds expectations in all areas, um, and there's just this note. There has been no fault found or error found in him or her throughout this entire year, signed boss. Why? Wouldn't you love that? These are Daniel's enemies trying to find something to get, stick him with, and they can't find it. These are not his friends. These are people who are looking for a way to get him taken out of authority, not help him grow in authority. These guys are finding no fault with him. Why? Because there's an excellent spirit in Daniel. What is that excellent spirit doing? It's helping to lead him to follow after God's heart. There's an excellent Holy Spirit in Daniel, and it's making him honest and making him upright, making him do his service to the king to the very best of his ability. Now, stop for just a second. One of the things not listed in that list of things Daniel has endured, that he got to watch on about his... 35th birthday he got to watch the last of the people in Jerusalem and the leaders in Israel marched into Babylon he got to see blinded Jehoiakim the king of Israel marched in and he got to watch as the others among his group of Nebuchadnezzar's leadership team counted and cataloged all of the things that were once a part of the temple where his God was served. He got to hear the stories of the siege of Jerusalem that led to cannibalism. He got to hear the stories of the siege of Jerusalem that led to its destruction, led to the burning of the temple to the ground. Daniel got to endure all of that and yet he remained faithful to the job he was given. He remained faithful to the leader he believed God was leading. He remained faithful to the point where there was no fault to be found in him, even from his enemies. We have to recognize what a special guy this is. Because there is no reason for any of us not to be upset when something like that happens. But Daniel, if he had been reading Jeremiah, and I I think from chapter 9 we can find out that he was, knew that all of this was avoidable had the people of God submitted to the prophets of God and the will of God. And that Nebuchadnezzar, as Cyrus would be later, was actually performing the will of God over Israel. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So we can't find anything wrong with Daniel in terms of the laws of the land, but we can find something. Perhaps we can devise some way to catch him in, his, in his, the laws of his God, the way he goes about his worship, because he's not going to stop that. It's going to continue. You remember the story, I hope. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the councils, the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they show up at the king's desk and they say, we got an idea. We have an idea. Now, I've, looked, I've read this passage for the last many, many years, and I thought for a long time that this was just them appealing to this, this second-rate king, because he's not really king number one, Cyrus is number one, but appealing to him and kind of appealing to his pride, saying, hey, we have an idea, we're going to make you the best and brightest of all times, we're going to tell everybody they have to worship you, they have to pray to you for the next 30 days. 
And I, was, I thought at first this was just appealing to his pride, and I'm certain that may be a part of it. But one of the things I've read since the, that idea formulated in my brain is what Babylon was under when they were under siege, when Cyrus was coming in. Nabonidus, and we're going to throw out some names here. Nabonidus, who was the, the actual king, Belshazzar was co-regent in Babylon. Nabonidus went out around all of Babylon as Cyrus and his soldiers were descending on the empire. And he gathered up all of the various idols from all of the various temples. And he brought them into the city of Babylon, thinking that if all of the gods of Babylon were in one place, certainly they would protect the city of Babylon. Clearly not understanding that they were rocks and wood. That they were not the living God. But he thought by bringing them all into the city of Babylon, he could make the gods protect the city. In fact, when the city falls, he's not even there. He's up in Haran fighting. And so there's a a tremendous disruption, not only politically in Babylon, but religiously in Babylon. Because all the people in all the cities are going into the temple where there is no God and they're praying. Israel could get away with that, actually. Because Israel had a veil, right? You didn't go into the presence of God. It could be empty in there forever. No one would know because there was a veil. All of the other gods of the world, you came into their presence and you performed whatever responsible thing you were to perform to manipulate their behavior. And so when they went into that inner sanctum where the gods was supposed to be and where that statue was supposed to be, all there was was a space with no dust on the platform. There was no God. And it took months to get all those gods put back where they were supposed to go. It took months simply because there had to be rituals performed. You couldn't just take them back in and set them up. You had to sacrifice things and do different things and all these kinds of rituals had to be performed in order to reestablish them where they belonged. So here our God, our, 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 uh, our country is not only disrupted by a new political system, it's disrupted by all the gods not being out of place. And so this may not sound like such a bad idea to a king saying, let's get some stability in the religion too. Not just stability in the politics. Quickly, let's set up 120 satraps and three leaders over those satraps. But now some, some, some stability in the religion. Look, here's the bottom line. You guys are all confused about who you're supposed to pray to. Next 30 days, pray to me. I'll take care of it. It wasn't uncommon. For kings to be prayed to, although this was theologically inappropriate for him to do. The theology, the teachings of the, of the region would have said, no, you don't pray to the king. Oh, the, the, the pharaohs did that, some of the Romans did that, but that wasn't one of the things here. So the disruption in the religion is also causing this need for this. So I think this is part of what's happening here. So I think he's open to this, maybe Pride is part of it, but also because the religion is such a mess. Okay? I'm trying to give you too many facts, because then you start looking at me like you've been in history class. But get the picture. Anybody who prays to anybody but you, thrown in the lion's den. Dun, dun, dun. Now then, Daniel knew that the writing was signed. So these guys apparently brought in a... Here, sign here. Sign here, king. Sign here. It's like radar before the... Uh, in MASH, he comes in and just throws it down in front of him. Here, sign this. They tell him what it's about, he signs it, and now knowing that it's been sent, and now, according to the laws of the Medes of the Persian, and once a law has been, been decreed by the king, it cannot be broken, right? It's, it's a solid thing that's never going to change. Now, that's a big change for the times. Kings were always very capricious about the laws, but not the Medes of the Persians. When they laid down a law, it was the law, and that was final. It wasn't going to change after that. Daniel knew the writing was signed. He went home in his upper room with his window open toward Jerusalem. Apparently that was his habit. He knelt down on his knees three times that day. So what time of the day did he find out this law was being signed? Probably in the morning. Probably found out about it in the morning or late the night before. And he prays three times. Now, we don't know when, but it was traditional for Jews to pray at the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice and once during the day, two or three in the afternoon. Probably sticking with those traditions. Knelt on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God as was his custom since early days. He who is faithful in little things will be faithful also in much. Daniel remains remains faithful in this small things. Could he have closed the window? Just for the sake of making sure the blood is flowing. Raise your hand if you think you could have closed the window. 
Okay? Raise your hand if you think you would have closed the window. Don't even pretend that's not true. I see some of you doing this. You don't even want to commit to raising your hand. I would have closed the window. I'm almost certain I would have closed the window. I know who I am. And I'm almost certain at that point I would have closed the window. Now maybe later, maybe after I'm 80, I won't close the window anymore. I'm open. I'm hoping to get to that point. But Daniel's not closing the window. This is the way he's done it. This is the way he's intending to continue doing it. He remains faithful. This is a small deal whether the window is open or not, isn't it? It's a small deal. Your prayers go through windows. It's a small deal. It is a small deal. Theologically, Ethel and Freeman, it is a small deal. Your prayers get heard no matter what happens. But your testimony changes. Your testimony changes if you close the window. It's a small theological deal. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. If you, your prayers are going to be heard, window open or window closed, but your testimony is affected by the behaviors. The patterns of your life are affected. Even unbelievers know what the practices of faith look like. Think about it for a second. Even unbelievers know what the practices of faith look like. Even people who knew that who did not practice Daniel's faith knew what the practices of his faith looked like. It was not a big deal whether or not your prayer could be heard with the windows open or closed. His prayers could be heard with that window closed. But his testimony would be affected by closing the window. His testimony to them and to everyone else, the faithfulness of Daniel was on display when that window was open, when that window went closed would have said something about his faithfulness, would have said something about his faith, would have said something about his testimony, would have said something about what he believed about God. And I'm telling you, that is such rebuke to me because I've been such a chicken, I'm almost sure I would have closed that window. <laughs> you knelt down and you prayed, and these men assembled. Note, they knew that he prayed, they knew when he prayed. There's like, okay, he'll be there at about 9. Let's go. 8.30, they're all standing outside just in case they miss it. Daniel throws the windows open, kneels down. They go, got him. They all break out their cell phones and take pictures. (laughs) So they have testimony before the king. They they, they, They see him praying and offering supplication before his God. They run off to the king and they say, that Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, this guy's been in there for 67 years. He's been faithfully serving the kings without change on his ankles. I don't really consider him a captive from Judah. I consider him a servant of the king for the last seven decades. One of those captives from Judah does not show due regard for you, O king, or for your decree. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with who? With himself. How did I get tricked by these conniving, weaselly little suckers? Or satraps, whichever you want to call it. It's a great name. If you want to avoid some of those words, you you get really angry with somebody in 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 traffic, just call them a satrap. You satrap! When my friend uses the term vultures, it's a good term. The king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself, set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He knew the law was settled. He knew he had to follow the law, but he tried to find some way to work it out. He called in his best lawyers, and they sat down. They spent the whole day trying to find some way to wiggle around this rule he had just made, but it was pretty plain what this rule was. It's a simple rule. Pray to no one but me for 30 days, and if you do, into the lion's den with you. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now, lest you wonder about this den of lions, we have archaeological demonstrations. that The satraps, these guys who were the, sort of the, the rulers, the, the, uh, the accountants for, for Babylon, they kept record of everything. We have a record from a thousand years before this time of food bought for the feeding of the lions at Babylon. Who records that? These guys recorded that. We bought this food 
to feed the lions, this is what it cost. Seriously. They're accounting records from 2000 B.C. Praise God for accountants because we know, we have solid proof that they had lions in a den at Babylon a thousand years before. There's no reason not to believe they still had them at this point. But the king spoke to Daniel. The king doesn't worship God. He's heard the stories apparently though. The king spoke to Daniel. Saying, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Ever had someone who doesn't believe try to encourage your faith? It happens, doesn't it? Here's this guy. He doesn't believe in Daniel's God. But he's, being, he's responsible for throwing Daniel into this den of lions, which is certain death. And this king, this leader, this ruler who does not believe in Daniel's God, tries to encourage Daniel before he throws him into the pit. Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. I heard about your three, three friends in the fire. I heard about that, 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 that image that, that you told the king about. I've heard about your faithfulness to your God. I've heard about all the things that have happened to you. I've heard about his, inter- his interaction for you. Your God, your God will protect you. Your God whom you serve continually, he'll protect you. I toss him down the chute into the den of hungry lions. And the king spent that night fasting. He refused any entertainment. He did not sleep. He arose very early the next morning, probably the first time it was legally responsible for him to go out there early in the morning. There was probably a rule about what morning was because, remember, they worshiped the sun. And he cried out to Daniel in a lamenting voice. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? What's he doing now? He's hoping to hear a voice in reply. He's hoping to hear that voice of his friend as a testimony for the fact that God has been blessing him. Your neighbors know your practice. They know the God you serve. They know the stories of your life. Hopefully they know your testimony. When things get tough for you, your non-believing neighbors are very likely to pray. Your non-believing neighbors are very likely to pray to the God they don't serve on your behalf. If you are faithful in your testimony, in your walk, if you're leading a God-directed life, people notice. And when they notice, it changes the way they relate to you and the God you serve. They may not trust him. They may not follow him. But very often they will pray to him for you when you hit a tight spot. This king had brought this on himself and brought this on Daniel and he feels terrible about it. Now he's standing there early, early, early in the morning with those who follow kings around, the members of his court, who have probably not been able to sleep that night too. And they're just like, please let Daniel be alive so we can go to bed. And they hear a voice from down inside. 85-year-old man says, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. Thus you could stop right there. But Daniel wants the king to know he has not in any way turned away from him, that the worship of his God has nothing to do with his relationship with the king. He's not, he's not dissing the king by worshiping God. He's just telling the king, look, I, I, this is no offense to you. I had no intention of causing you any, any discouragement or any harm or anything of that nature, but I cannot turn away from my God. He says, also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. All I did was pray. And I prayed in my house. 
Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury or whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Now I want you to remember Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar says, call them out and they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. And they pull Daniel out of the lion's den and no injury, no scratch. His clothes aren't shredded. Nothing's happened to him. He didn't sprain his ankle falling into the den. There was no injury on Daniel. Why? Because Daniel serves a living God. The same one you serve. The same God you serve. The same God you serve. It's not a rock and stick. It's not the imagination of some person. It's the true creator of the universe, the living God of heaven and earth. The lions didn't miss a meal. Now those who have plotted against Daniel become the target of the king's anger. And he throws them into the lion's den. Apparently the lions were really hungry because it says it ate them and their families and broke the bones. When the animals breaking the bones or eating the marrow out of the bones. Yuck. Somebody said yuck. But here's faith's impact. Here's faithfulness's impact. The king rises up and he makes a decree that everyone in every dominion of my kingdom must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. Not a living God. The living God. Gathered inside the walls of Babylon were all the gods of Babylon. They're all like standing up in there in little shrines all over the city. Because they were there to protect the the, the city from Cyrus. And it didn't work. You got stone statues of every god imaginable all, all over the place. Sun gods, moon gods, water gods, sand gods, you name it. There's a god for it in Babylon. They're sitting around in there and they're doing nothing. And the king says, everyone in this kingdom should fear the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He's been told about the story in chapter 2 where he sees that statue and a stone is cut without hands and strikes the statue on the bottom, grinds it into, into chaff. It blows away with the wind. That stone grows up and becomes a kingdom whose dominion will be forever. That same God from back then is still alive today, 2,000 years, or no, almost 2,500 years later. And that God is your God and my God. He is the one and only, the only living God. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? He has done these things in the past. He does these things today. Let me tell you a story. There was a guy in Brazil who was converted. He was a zookeeper. He was converted to Christianity. In fact, he became a Seventh-day Adventist. He was very serious about his faith. He was brand new. And you know how excited you were when you first became a believer. By the way, that's what you're being called back to in Revelation, to that first love relationship with God. He was so excited, he went off to work, and he's telling his friends, his fellow zookeepers, about this about this experience. This happened just a few years ago. He's saying, I, I was baptized this week. I became a follower of God. I, I'm, just, I'm just so excited about my faith. And there was a member of that zookeeping staff who was particularly uh, contentious toward Christianity. And he said, if you're such a great Christian, if your God is so awesome, just jump into the lion's den. Then did it happen with Daniel? See, everybody knows that story. Jump into the lion's den. And the guy, all excited about his faith, and trusting in God jumped in. I'm not sure that was advisable. He jumped into the lion's den. They hadn't been fed in 24 hours. Big male lion rises up from his place. You know, male lions, they spend most of their time reclining. 
He comes over to the man who is now standing a little bewildered about his decision in the middle of the lions. He comes over to him, sniffs his pant leg, walks back over to his place and lays back down. Seven of his fellow zookeepers were baptized. It's true. Because the same God who was living then is living now. He does not promise you that you will not have difficulties. In fact, it is almost certain that everyone who lives on this planet will face crises and difficult, difficulties in their life. But he promises that you will not be left alone during those things. Amen. He will walk with you. He will be with you, whether it's fire or lions that you face. He has not forgotten where you are, who you are, what you're doing. And he's watching over you. And so it was that Daniel served during the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, Persian, a faithful servant of God, finishing well. I don't know what course is out in front of you today, whether you feel like you're on the second half or the first half, the first quarter or the last tenth. But if Daniel lays anything in front of us in his 80s, it is a call to finish well. It is a call to remain faithful in the highs and lows, in choices that don't seem significant, in choices that seem extremely significant. It is a call to finish the path, walking with our hand in the hand of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed by the story of Daniel because in comparison we recognize our faultiness. We pray that you would lay your hand upon us. We believe, help our unbelief, We trust a little, help us to trust a lot. So that no matter what we face, no matter what is, what magnifying glass is placed on our life, we might be seen to be following you. That our testimony might be that we trust you the one and only living God. In your name we pray. Amen.